Welcome to Wild Spaces, coming to you from Denver, Colorado, where the Great Plains meet the Rocky Mountains, where we connect you to nature, real estate, and the adventurous professionals leading us to a better designed, healthier future. So grab your notebook, sketch pad, and put your feet in the grass as we become more wild together. Welcome to the Wild Spaces podcast. This is your host, Matt Dungan. On today's episode, we're interviewing Kristen Fulmer. Kristen's a sustainability expert focused on maximizing performance and promoting occupant health and well-being within the built environment. In 2019, Kristen founded Reciproc, a partner to sports organizations seeking to support and visualize their sustainability strategy and enact positive change. Prior to that, Kristen worked as the sustainability advisor for WeWork's global sustainability team, and then before that, worked at Lendlease and uh, Palladino, kind of premier consulting firms and real estate companies. So, Kristen, happy to have you on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking. Yeah, yeah, great catching up again. Um, so like me, you're a fellow alumni of the University of Texas School of Architecture, which is great, <laughs> great. Um, where you have your master's degree in sustainable design, your undergrads from Virginia Tech School of Architecture. So curious, just as we get started, you're you know, moving into sustainability consulting world rather than, I guess, what some would call a traditional architecture path or design firms. Was that something you knew you wanted to do as you went into school or what was that evolution? Yeah, it's an interesting path. I think all of us have a somewhat, uh, never a, a direct path way. Um, so I, I grew up loving buildings. Um, I, as a kid, always knew I was interested in architecture, at least that's what I always said when someone asked what I wanted to be when I grew up and kind of stuck with that when I was looking for colleges and applying to colleges. That's how I found Virginia Tech. Uh, I was originally from North Carolina and had researched schools of architecture um, and, you know, starting, yeah, it's a great school. It is. And it's, a, you know, it's a beautiful area and looping later into life, also a great sports school. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, just a, uh, well-rounded school, um, really excited to be a part of it and had started the architecture program and very quickly realized that I think it was actually one specific class called urbanization and development that made me realize I was really interested in, in cities broadly and how buildings interacted with each other and maybe not necessarily a specific detail, but how they all, you know, related to each other and also with people. Um, and later realized the value of the details as well. Um, and, and during that time, I, you know, was just kind of thinking about the word more efficiency at that point and, and realized that sustainability, which was an emerging topic, um, mm -hmm. not necessarily courses on it quite yet, but at least it was a conversation. Um, sustainability was really all about efficiency. And so I, I grew up with parents that were really excited uh, and advocates for the environment. And so this was already in my uh, understanding. And so, you know, as I learned more about the world of sustainability, I realized that I wanted to pursue sustainable design as, as a master's program. So uh, come senior year, did the same thing I did, you know, searched for sustainable design programs. There weren't a ton of them, but the program at the University of Texas in Austin was uh, ranked really high. And I, I really, you know, that was, of course, on the list. Um, but I, after seeing that, dove deeper and was really interested in their integration of existing architecture school as well as community development program 
um, mm-hmm. and how all those intertwine because I, like I mentioned before, was really interested in cities and, and a larger scale of, of building design and construction as well. So while I was at UT, I saw a presentation, um, you know, one of the career development presentations uh, from someone at Palladino who explained really what Palladino uh, as one example of a sustainability consulting firm, uh, what they did, um, which was show clients with examples and, and tell them how to make their existing buildings um, or designs more sustainable. And I pointed to that and I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so yeah. that, that was the path. Um, but it, it only came through kind of more learning and evolution over time. I wouldn't have ever sought that career out um, freshman year. Oh, interesting. But you knew you wanted to be an architect when you were young. Which I think is very common. I feel like actually I was one of the probably anomalies going into architecture school that I hadn't, you know, didn't have parents that were architects. And it hadn't really been something that was on my mind until I had a drafting class that I took, ended up taking like an elective in high school that I ended up taking for two and a half years. And that professor was an architect. And so when it came time to apply to college, I was like, oh yeah, like I've enjoyed this. I should just do it. And then it turns out, you know, I love it and feels natural now. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely a theme that comes up of people that have been interested in buildings since a young age. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, architecture, I think is always seen externally as, as a really <laughs> glamorous profession. Um, and we know after being in studios in architecture school <laughs> that there's, you know, a ton of work that, that goes into being an architect. Um, and as our building systems get more complicated, I think there's, you know, importance in being more niche and and specialists in what those buildings look like and how they function together and so the you know momentum towards sustainable buildings and um, all of the other different building systems working together has been you know really fascinating so kids start out thinking about buildings maybe they're good at building blocks and then it's amazing you know what small niches they fall into with interests I also had a drafting teacher in high school that uh, was one of my favorite teachers and definitely an inspiration and oh, getting nice. me thinking about <laughs> learning about uh, AutoCAD and, and um, hand drafting as well. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. AutoCAD, when you had to type out like the full word. Oh my gosh. Way back there... in the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Clunky computers, everything. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned that you grew up in North Carolina. I know big kind of sports culture, college basketball, obviously. Um, for me growing up in Texas, you know, it was Friday Night Lights, high school football, and college football as well. Um, so I'm curious how that relationship with sports like has shaped your focus and career as well. Absolutely. I, you know, sports had always been a passion of mine. By the way, if you're from North Carolina, that's right. <laughs> it's college basketball. It's a Duke or Carolina. That's the first question you ask when you meet someone. Uh, so for anyone wondering, my answer is Duke. Um, <laughs> uh, huge Duke basketball fan. And, uh, you know, always considered that a personal hobby. Um, when I was choosing colleges, actually, I was choosing between uh, RISD and Virginia Tech, which couldn't be more opposite schools. Um, and <laughs> one of the ways that it helped me make my decision was that Virginia Tech was an ACC school, and that was what I was familiar with. And it, they had a sports program, which was, again, a hobby of mine. Um, and, you know, it's definitely helped unleash my kind of competitive spirit always motivated to, to kind of do better 
and achieve the, you know, the next goal. But uh, now it's quite literally integrated into my job and thinking about, you know, just as you said, how sustainability uh, and sports come together. Yeah. Yeah. I think I read this previously and just refresh myself on it today, but according to Fortune, they say that 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs played organized sports. And while, you know, only less than 10% of those CEOs currently are women, 90% of those also played organized sports and more, more than half of those were like all the way up to a college level. So there's something there about the strong overlap in personality types and drive, I would imagine. Um, so I'm curious how that shows up in, in your clients that you work with. Wow, that's super interesting. I, I mean, I think it's funny because on one hand, you think of sports as being, you know, hyper competitive and, you know, always about winning and being at the top. But so much of sports, especially, you know, as you play as a youth is just about teamwork um, and, you know, meeting, fulfilling your commitments. And my dad always taught me he was my softball coach uh, when I was a kid and, you know, always taught me that you, you know, never don't show up to practice. You have to be there. It's commitment to the team. Um, and I think that, you know, corporate leadership probably recognizes that need to be a good teammate as well as achieve, you know, the, the goals that you set out to achieve. Yeah, um, as well as the competitiveness and that that diligence and commitment that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. The And, and I think the strategy, too, like the business strategy um, goes hand in hand probably with, you know, playing a game of chess, right? Like you're always a few moves ahead. Um, and, and I think that's true in most competitive sports, whether they're team sports or individual sports as well. Um, you're always looking at a few steps ahead. I mean, I think in, in any clients or leaders that I work with, um, I find the most um, kind of positive projects and, and most impactful projects come out of leaders that, you know, can advocate for their teams um, and not necessarily be a coach, but be a player um, to, to bring it back into the sports metaphor um, and really play an active role, um, maybe a captain uh, of a team, but, but still a mm -hmm. player doing, doing some work. So I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. So maybe getting into expanding on your work a little bit more, there's all this jargon, I think, in our industry around sustainability and things like biophilia and commercial real estate in general has all these kind of specific language, which a lot of industries do. Um, but I think that's kind of part of a barrier to just wider spread adoption or understanding of, you know, the values and the techniques here. So one of the things we're really focused on at Wild Spaces Institute is trying to use accessible and clear language, which reading through some of your past interviews and in our pre-talks, I think you do really well. So I think for our audience, we'd love to hear how you describe sustainability and what you do as a, you know, quote, sustainability consultant. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a challenging topic because it changes all the time, I think, depending on who you talk to. And I think that's the really critical part of having making sure that sustainability as a general topic resonates with, with whatever audience or stakeholder you're, you're talking to um, and speaking that same language. Um, in terms of how to uh, I guess define the word sustainability, I mean, I think, you know, sustainability as a word itself does come with a decent amount of baggage at this point, especially in the building industry. So many real estate developers might think of sustainability and only think uh, of lead. I was deemed the lead girl 
uh, for way too long on too many construction projects. Um, And I think that, you know, that's just one way that it can manifest. I think other people think of sustainability as, you know, being totally about recycling or totally about energy efficiency. Um, And and other people that think of sustainability and all they think are extra dollar signs. Um, And so I struggle with that word, but it is kind of the best word to describe um, what I actually think sustainability is about, which is really just proactive, positive change. Um, I think it's about, you know, making a positive impact, um, whether that's for people, um, whether that's environmentally for the planet, whether that's a, a business decision. Um, but I think that it, it can't make a positive impact uh, totally or, or be totally sustainable if it's not hitting all three of those elements, the people, the planet, and the profit, the, the three Ps that are often talked about. Um, and I actually, before started grad school, I think I mentioned, I thought of sustainability as totally about efficiency and really overlooked the fact that an efficient building is really not uh, all that great if the people inside are not also efficient. I had totally overlooked the human element. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that those two things are, are really critical to be thought of together. Yeah. Um, and that's where ha- that was. It's, it's amazing how quickly it's evolved, right? And sustainability at that time largely was about energy efficiency kind of systems. And now we've moved into this world of, you know, kind of focusing on people once again, realizing that that's ultimately what it's about in conjunction with the energy is, you know, this push towards wellness, kind of human-centered design. And then hopefully there's, you know, a new phase beyond that, that, that we're interested in. But yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, that's what I would have thought of as well, probably back in architecture school, which wasn't that long ago. So it's been fascinating to see kind of how quickly the movements evolved. It is. And I think, you know, when I'm having early conversations with, with organizations that are maybe just getting started on their sustainability journey or are really not comfortable with that topic or with that word yet, I often point to the UN Sustainable Development Goals because they are so comprehensive. All 17 goals do not necessarily address explicitly um, you know, that environmental efficiency side, they also have just as many goals that address, um, human elements, you know, poverty, education, equity, uh, as well as even business elements, including infrastructure and and innovation, um, and economic performance. And so I, I, I think it's a really tangible way to talk about a, a pretty complicated, uh, concept because there is no kind of direct pathway. There's so many different pathways to achieve positive change. Yeah. So with your clients now, particularly with sports organizations, how do you describe what you do in your services? Right. So uh, because I do sometimes avoid the word sustainability, just because especially in sports, I think um, it's it's thought of as, as one specific topic. And, and usually in sports, it has to do with waste, man, waste management, because that's the most... Um, kind of direct thing uh, and, and visible thing in people's faces. Um, mm-hmm. So to avoid sustainability, at least in, in kind of the elevator pitch, I, I call myself a positive change agent. Um, so it really an advocate uh, or an agent to represent uh, positive change, uh, whether that's for people again or planet and, and hopefully leads to profit as well. Um, and so I typically position myself uh, almost as an in-house sustainability 
driver. Um, so, you know, try to kind of integrate into teams as much as possible uh, in-house and then, you know, can bring that efficiency working across multiple organizations so that I have kind of knowledge and understanding how, of how other teams or other sports or leagues have, have approached these topics. Um, and I think what's really exciting about sports that is so different than my background in commercial real estate or, or even uh, residential is that sports have this amazing um, asset of brand partnerships and sponsorships to help drive the message. Uh, and so sports organizations don't necessarily themselves need to make all the decisions, but they can lean on brand partnerships that are already doing great sustainability work. So I often find myself just being a kind of a dot connector and pointing to things that are already out there. And, you know, maybe the, the stadium operations team is, is doing some really great energy efficiency strategies, but there's also a utility partner at the stadium. Um, and so how do we actually make that connection and, and bring it public and engage with fans because sports has that amazing platform to, to share this amazing work. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think that, you know, work in the private sector to me makes a lot of sense. You see the the kind of corporations and well-funded sports organizations that I think should and are largely now starting to step up and be really key agents of that positive change, which is great. I think it's hopefully we've moved into this era as well of, you know, being able to move a little bit quicker, companies that can iterate faster and not rely necessarily on like local state federal government level initiatives which you know, we'd love to have they're important but um i think yeah for me as well is a lot of focus on that organizational level yeah and and i think you know we're seeing probably now more than ever that people consumers fans whoever vote with their dollar uh they're looking for these um and so you know even if, if state policies or city policies local mandates exist to to help drive that change being leaders in this will have positive business returns as well. Um, and I think we're starting to see that more and more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's certainly this era of transparency that people are demanding from their brands and organizations, I think largely led by outdoor retails, you know, the Patagonias, the interfaces like that, where connection to the environment is such a part of their consumers' lives um, and their brand. So, but I think it sounds like you're saying that there's sports organizations are starting to embrace this as well. So who's, who's kind of on the forefront of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've, I've thought a lot about it uh, actually initially during the COVID shutdown um, was fascinated and inspired um, and grateful really for all of the prominent sports organizations, you know, very wealthy ownership and also um, very famous athletes that just responded to the crisis of the initial hit of COVID um, so generously and in so many interesting ways, you know, partnering with local food banks or, uh, you know, doing pop-up COVID testing stations or just providing PPE where we could. Um, and so I initially started thinking about this and, and actually did quite a <laughs> comprehensive <laughs> measurement of, of all of these teams thinking about how that their uh, generosity actually has quite a decent business return uh, in the long run and ability to resonate with fans and maybe even grow their fan base in really unique ways. Um, 
and it didn't feel right to to rank that, <laughs> although mm -hmm. I, I considered it. Um, but you know, I, I realized that you know everybody's generosity was was really um, monumental at, at the time, um, and I thought that that should really be commended. But then I you know started thinking about all of the other ways that teams um, are integrating into their communities and have been. You know, this isn't new, um, and we're seeing more and more how you know the NBA. Uh, doing pop-up uh, polling stations for the, the recent election, as another example, um, just finding new ways to integrate into the community where I think before it was, sports had often been thought of as just an entertainment. Um, you know, there's, there's really kind of purpose-driven elements of, of sport that are outside of just entertainment. Um, in the world of sustainability, I think I have to call out uh, Climate Pledge Arena, which is just uh, newly named. Uh, Amazon is the, the naming sponsor and it's huge that it's not called Amazon Arena. Mm -hmm. So yeah. win number one, um, it's, it's a redeveloped stadium in Seattle that will be home to the new Seattle Kraken as well as uh, the Seattle Storm um, WNBA team. And you know, this aligns with a larger mission of, of Amazon's and, and their larger commitment called the Climate Pledge. Uh, and so the building is really a way for them to walk the talk and showcase all of the amazing innovative things that they can do. Uh, so I think that that's hugely exciting um, because it's all of the things that I, I talk about, you know, partnerships, communications, um, on the ground operational strategies. Um, and, and, you know, it, it hasn't been redeveloped yet. It's in the early stages. So, so hopefully we'll see, but I think it's, it's a really great positive example. And just, you know, from a sustainability perspective, someone is using the word climate every time they describe that location. And so mm -hmm. that, that word is being integrated into our vocabulary. Um, there's also many, um, professional sports teams that are, uh, real leaders in this, maybe one that I'll just quickly highlight because I think they do a good job of being holistic are the Philadelphia Eagles, where they have a partnership with their utility company, have solar panels, uh, and used to have wind turbines on site, um, and they're very visible. Uh, this is a, a very visible partnership. Um, they have many other environmental sustainability strategies, including a circular waste program, they built a you know, recycled Lombardi trophy out of old bottle caps with their um, one of their partners. But then they also have social sustainability uh, engagements. Not that other teams don't, um, but they've taken a lead in, in terms of mental health. They have uh, basically a room set up, a sensory room um, for people that might feel overwhelmed uh, at games, for example. So they're really you know leaning on on mental health as well as, as social equity work within their community. Um, and colleges, universities, and even you know, youth sports are, are doing similar things because these amazing leaders are, are paving the way. Yeah, it's great to see. I mean, they're some of the most expensive buildings that get built in current times. And so I think it's amazing to see them kind of embracing the reach that they have you know, as athletes, as owners, and just prominence as physical structures like in our landscape, right? That brings so many people together. Today's episode is brought to you by the Wild Spaces Institute, your hub for connecting people to nature through commercial real estate and architecture. Discover how you can create real estate and designs that are valuable, awe-inspiring, and biophilic at wildspacesinstitute.org.
I think back to one of the last urban design studios I had in architecture school at UT was looking at the London during their pursuit of the Olympics, which they obviously ended up getting. So it was really cool to kind of see what they what they did with that. But we spent time over there in East London, and I think that one brings a lot of the elements that I imagine you're describing together. Part of why it was successful was there was a lot of reuse of arenas. They went into kind of blighted, poorer section of London and really injected funding there. There was a lot of waterway restoration, things like that that I think really led to the success of those games. And you look at how it's kind of pulled investment over to the east side of London. So I, th I think of that just personally as one that I see the impact of sports um, and the investment that goes there out into like a broader region and section of town. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you said that. I think that that reuse piece and the flexibility is really critical. <laughs> I think uh, sports owners or, or stadium owners maybe had gotten complacent. Like it felt like sports was basically indestructible. <laughs> um, and, you know, as, as a business, people aren't going to stop following sports. But apparently there are ways um, to prevent people from enjoying sports live. <laughs> and so stadiums <laughs> quickly become... Um, less relevant for that specific purpose but like you mentioned you know it's so helpful to then have other ways to engage with the community whether it's pop-up events you know for crisis mode or um kind of long-term well-designed and, and thought out uh, ways to engage with community even you know integrating a school or a maker space or co-working space I, i've seen really great examples and uh, proposals for for all of those strategies and I will highlight because you mentioned integrating into the community that um, there's some really interesting writing coming out um, about climate pledge arena um, that you know basically brings to light that there hasn't been so much yet a, a focus on that social equity piece within Seattle and so it sounds like people are, are saying there might be some work left to be done there so I um, figured I'd, I'd highlight that as well, even though I highlighted it as a great example. Of course, there's there's always areas for potential improvement. Yeah, yeah. So you, you've written about just this need to address comfort and kind of all the five senses in these entertainment venues as they try to reattract fans, right? Like you said, we didn't probably never thought that would happen, that there'd be a need to kind of make people comfortable and want to come back to these large venues. But that's where we are. I think it's been long enough now that hopefully people are embracing the idea that we're not just going to return to normal, right? And I think that applies in my projects in corporate workplace, where we talk about comfort and safety and security in the same way. And you're talking about it with these larger venues. Um, but I think that concept of like understanding the five senses and the experience of these places and it's what natural environments do really well. How do we bring that into the built environment in a comfortable way? Um, so I'm curious to talk about just your, your approach to that and the, the, how that plays into home field advantage, how that concept of like comfort translates into the discussions you're having with organizations and your clients. Yeah, no, thanks for, for asking about that because I think it is really important and isn't going away, even though, you know, this kind of approach thinking about, you know, reopening, you know, with confidence, with user confidence or comfort, um, has never really entirely been considered before. Um, but again, I, I think, you know, this is a concept that's here to stay. Uh, so I guess from, from my approach, I mean, 
we know enough about uh, COVID-19, at least, to, to understand how it's typically transmitted. We have the cleaning um, you know, policies and protocols down. We, we know physically how to address um, or, or minimize transmission of the virus. Um, not that we won't know or have future incidents, but, but at least this time. Um, and so now it's, it's really about that perception and an understanding. Um, people think a lot of things and have perception and different levels of comfortability with um, being in public places again uh, after this kind of shock to, to all of our systems. Um, and so that confidence piece is really what teams, and like you said, I think office space and, and even other industries, retail, are, are thinking a lot about right now. And so, you know, in, in some ways, it's important to know that that the space is just practically addressing the virus, but then it's so critical to just be able to take that deep breath and not have it it constantly looming over your head. And so my narrative about the five senses is really that there's so many different ways to engage with people and reassure them that are, are subtle um, because a sign that says just cleaned um, only goes so far. Uh, and so, I actually originally thought of this because I had a lot of clients that had totally pulled their green cleaning policy uh, in light of COVID um, because they thought they needed stronger chemicals and ended up um, wanting to keep those stronger chemicals because it smelled uh, clean. People yeah. smelled it well, and they're like, clean. oh, well, it must have yeah. just been cleaned. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's like, well, it smells toxic. Um, but I, I think, you know, I realized that that scent piece, you know, you can't see it. You also can't see the virus um, is, is really huge. Um, and so all of these kind of invisible sensory sensor, senses, I guess, um, you know, play into this kind of like sensory overload that we're all experiencing. And so being intentional and sophisticated with that approach is really important. Um, specifically in sports, for example, I think there's really great ways to showcase, um, you know, COVID safe practices by you know, leveraging the voices of athletes or showcasing um, some people who work back of house to clean the place that never get the platform. Um, I think right now people are really interested in hearing the voices of those quote, you know, essential workers uh, and, and want to um, be able to commend them and thank them um, for all of the amazing work to, to make it happen. So doing that over audio um, or, you know, featuring them on, on the big screen visibly. Um, mm -hmm. so those are all different ways to engage um, with the five senses. That's cool. Maybe building off that, what do you see as the potential to bring natural elements and kind of these benefits of the outdoors into the same sports and training facilities? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I guess I didn't answer the um, second part of, of the last question, which was about home field advantage. Um, so this is concept that many of us are, are probably familiar with, even if we're not sports fans. Um, there's kind of that, that magic element of, of what home field advantage is. There's nothing like being at home, um, whether that's just generally maybe, but um, in sports, there's that kind of, you know, real magic there and, and spirit um, that's, you know, again, invisible, but really powerful. Uh, and so Reciproc's mission to redefine home field is advantage is to tap into all of those um, other ways to, to you know, make athletes uh, 
perform better, feel more confident during their game, make fans really engaged and excited, um, and you know, really just make people even more proud of, of the home stadium, home field that they already have. Uh, and so when I initially created Home Field Advantage, it was specifically focused on athletic performance because I was so interested in thinking about tapping into all of the great design strategies we know to be true of commercial real estate, um, where we know that employees will be more productive and rest and recover at home better and eventually take less sick days. We have those metrics. Um, how do we integrate that in, into sports facilities uh, for athletes to start to do the same? Um, it's shocked me that that hasn't been done because athletes measure yeah. every single metric where, you know, employers aren't able to do that with their employees. Athletes are already doing that. Um, and so that element of home field advantage was really me thinking, okay, well, you know, the home team could design their space <laughs> to be all of these things. And then, you know, you have an upper hand on, on the guest locker room, maybe that doesn't have these strategies. That's, that mm -hmm. was the original intent. And I only laughed because I think we can be a little less competitive about it now. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Being uh, at home has new meanings now in, in 2020 for sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think integrating natural elements of that is huge. Uh, we know in, in commercial real estate that biophilia um, and natural access to natural light and um, even, you know, color and, and temperature, all of those environmental quality aspects have a huge impact on how people, um, employees perform, you know, even down to like the number of, you know, words typed per minute or, or mm -hmm. whatever that metric is. And so, um I have, don't think I've ever seen um, an athletic facility that integrates these design strategies um, into a place where athletes spend most of their time. Not that that's necessarily a locker room, but maybe it's their fitness space or, you know, they sit in rooms for hours on end watching film from yeah. the last day. Yeah. Um, these are a lot of times just, you know, concrete cinder block rooms with not even windows, hopefully uh, ergonomic seating, but um maybe not even that. Uh, and so I just think there's so much opportunity to integrate what we already know um, of these positive qualities into sports. Yeah, I agree. And it's great to see you on like, you know, kind of forefront of this discussion, because I was shocked too, um, when we had a talk before and realized that yes, there's all these documented benefits for recovery and healthcare, for decreased pain med use, you know, for focusing in an office building, sleeping better, all these other things that have been really looked at, you know, pretty heavily by now in many other industries. But I haven't, I also haven't seen it kind of described in like a sports athlete human performance world, which again, was just really surprising to me where it's, you know, people at the peak level of performance for every millisecond, every millisecond matters. And like you said, they are, they track everything, everything they eat, everything they do. Um, so yeah, I see that as a huge opportunity to bring some, this concept of like, and design framework of connecting to nature and the benefits that come from that into spaces for athletes and training and recovery. Absolutely. And I guess that, that recovery piece, I didn't highlight as well, um, as, as I should have, but I mean, I think a huge amount of the toll that athletes take is just in travel, especially professional and, and a lot of college athletes they're traveling a huge amount across time zones. Um, they're always sleeping in a different place and, and all of that takes a toll on you. And so it's not necessarily even the fitness facilities, but I think there's also really interesting 
ways to start to think about, you know, um, minimum standards for hospitality, um, or, you know, ways to help athletes, uh, create their, make their home, um, integrate all of these qualities as well. That's great. I mean, eager to follow how you, how you start to integrate this into some of the facilities. So maybe talk to us about, I'm sure you've got some exciting current projects underway. I'd love to hear more about what you're working on specifically these days. Yeah, for sure. Um, so one of the, the projects I spend a lot of time on is a, a nonprofit called Eco Athletes. Uh, so that's a, a nonprofit that's basically aimed to inspire athletes to, to take climate action. Um, maybe less relevant to the building world specifically, um, although one of the Eco Athlete champions, so this is one of, uh, this is an athlete that um, is already taking climate action um, can be deemed kind of an eco-athlete champion and, and help be an advocate and we can help provide them with platform in the sustainability world and they can um, use their amazing platform to help share our work and, and you know, recruit kind of other athletes to this call towards climate action as well. Um, one of those eco-athlete champions is named Gary Gilliam, who is an NFL, a former NFL player, um, played with the Seahawks and the 49ers. Um, and he, it's a circuitous path for me, but he, long story short, is um, from the same town that my husband is from. Um, and I happened to see Gary on the local news um, speaking about uh, a redevelopment project uh, of, of an abandoned school in, in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, where they're from. And this school happened to be the school that my husband went to before it was abandoned. Oh, wow. And so it, it, I was seeing this NFL player talking about a redevelopment of a building um, in a place that I know very well on the local news. This was last Thanksgiving, actually. Uh, so 2019. And I saw this, you know, an athlete who's using his platform to, to talk about um, things he's passionate about, but also to help his community. Um, and I couldn't help myself, but <laughs> find a way to get involved. So this is a project I'm really excited about. It's called the Bridge Eco Village. Um, and it's it, basically the, the project in Harrisburg is a pilot um, for hopefully additional bridges kind of throughout the U.S. Um, but it's, it's, you know, described as an eco village. So providing many different elements of what, um, underserved communities uh, might need access to. Uh, they have a model called work, eat, live, learn, and play. Um, and all of those elements are integrated into this very large old building that will be redeveloped to provide all of, all of these amazing um, elements that are quite literally a bridge um, for the community, a way to connect um, and a way to um, obtain, you know, generational wealth and learn more about uh, finances and get hands-on uh, experience in a maker space or co-working space or access to affordable housing um, in, in one central place. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it's amazing that the team um, outside of me joining has been on this journey for longer than COVID has existed <laughs> and is, you know, now sees such a critical need for this kind of, for lack of a better term, like a one-stop shop really for all, you know, kind of community needs and in a very sustainable, uh, localized way. Um, yeah. and yeah. the team, the team's amazing because they, 
really listen to the community of what the community want and need, um, which is, you know, my favorite part of working with them. Yeah, that is amazing. And it gets back to our earlier discussion about just the evolution of the, you know, term quote, sustainability, right? That what we're looking at now is an understanding of the interrelatedness of all these systems, right? That it is about, like you said, with the, with the three P's, like it's embracing all of those, um, move much beyond energy, then moved even beyond just kind of health and wellness into projects that really are restorative. And they're, they're about food and vertical gardening and education and financial learning and literacy and all those things. Um, I mean, it sounds like an amazing project and great work that you're doing. Yeah, no, it, it, the team is, is really, truly inspiring. And I think, you know, as um, I, I kind of lead the sustainability for the team and as that person, I'm constantly doing the opposite of what I find myself doing in most uh, development projects, which is you know, saying, hey, let's let's pull the reins in a little bit. Let's, uh, you know, really think practically before we make these huge commitments, because everybody is so excited about <laughs> just doing the most possible for the community, which is which is great. Um, and so, like you said, we're, you know, we're talking a lot about how we want the the space to um, be net zero energy um, as, as one of the commitments. And, you know, we're considering solar panels and, and lots of interesting innovative technologies to help us get there, but are so conscious that we can't in good conscience do that without addressing the community explicitly first, because um, from a community perspective, you know, what are solar panels doing for them when, you know, they just, you know, need access to fresh food, for mm -hmm. example. And that's, that's one of the things that the space uh, intends to provide. Oh, great. As yeah, hopefully all those things are wrapped in this kind of, nature connected design framework as well and just bringing some of those tangible benefits into you know kind of an abandoned school in this case yeah absolutely and it's you know intentionally positioned in a place that you know really needs some of these things um, and unfortunately the community hasn't had access to, to many of these things including being located in a food desert um, just you know some of these very basic human needs and and Gary um, the, the CEO of the bridge often talks about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And although we are mm -hmm. striving to, um, address those, it, it evolves quickly into, like you said, restorative, um, and regeneration. Yeah. That uh, sounds amazing. And I think of that on a bigger scale of just back to arenas and some of these bigger venues, just the amount of space that they occupy right in our cities from roadways there to lots and lots of parking energy usage and yeah just think of the amazing opportunities to kind of start to re-green naturalize bring some of these benefits into those areas that just occupy such a large amount of square footage in our urban landscapes totally and are used you know eight to ten times a year in some cases yeah um, yeah yep absolutely well, that's amazing. Well, Kristen, thank you for the time. Um, why don't you tell everybody just a little bit about Reciproc, where they can find you, where they can get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. No, this is it's been a great conversation. Uh, so Reciproc, R-E-C-I-P-R-I-C. I only spell that because uh, I get lots of questions about that. <laughs> um, but it's Reciproc.com or at Reciproc um, on Twitter or Instagram. Um, I'd love to connect with people that are like-minded thinking about this um, are interested in learning more. Great, great. Well, once again, this was Kristen Fulmer. 
glad to have you on. This has been really fun. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Wild Spaces podcast. This is your host, Matt Dungan, saying I hope you're feeling a little more wild and inspired. Continue your journey to connect people with nature through design at wildspacesinstitute.org. And subscribe to the Wild Spaces podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform.